Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Good evening, everyone. Welcome on this rainy evening. We're really, really glad to have you. And a big welcome to those of us joining us on the web at cartercenter.org. We're webcasting all over the world. Hi, everyone out there. We hope you keep the Twitter feed going. It's going to be a really, really interesting conversation. Um, and the hashtag for you Twitter folks out there is Convos. There are, I think, four hashtags going on this uh, event. Convos TCC, uh, DRC 2011, DRC, and Congo. Those are all hashtags to use for this conversation. Uh, the conversation series at the Carter Center gives us an opportunity to discuss Carter Center peace and health efforts and current world issues here with our neighbors in the Atlanta area. Um, but because of the technology of webcast, we're also able to share our good work uh, worldwide. And we encourage you to learn more about upcoming conversations and also watch past events um, at the cartercenter.org website. It's cartercenter.org slash conversations. That's where you'll find it. Uh, but you can also subscribe to the Carter Center podcasts of this series on iTunes. After a brief discussion among panelists, we will invite you here in the audience to ask your own questions by approaching the microphones in the aisles. And for those of you on the web, uh, we'll have some questions also coming in through Twitter if you want to submit those. Um, and so now I'd like to bring up our wonderful panelists, and I'm going to introduce them as they come up. Uh, first, we have Sophie Borel-Gossen, who is the field office director of the Carter Center's Human Rights Program um, in the Congo. Uh, she maintains the Carter Center's relationships with government officials, international representatives, uh, political party representatives, civil society leaders, project partners, and other human rights organizations in the DRC, both domestically and internationally. Um, Sophie, you are here, and I'm standing in front of your chair. Um, Sophie developed, you can sit. Um, Sophie developed the civilian training program for the UN mission in the DRC and served as regional program advisor for the child protection and education issues for Save the Children. Um, in the Middle East and North Africa region. Additionally, Burrell implemented human rights and civil society strengthening programs for the delegation of the European Union in Yemen and Jordan, creating a sustainable NGO network uh, and coordination mechanisms that are still active today. She holds a European Master in Humanitarian Assistance, Emergency Rehabilitation, and a Master of International Field Legal Officer, both from University, both of them from the University of A. Marseille. Sophie, welcome. We are pleased to have her. Next, I'd like to bring uh, Lise Kessens, the project manager for the Carter Center's Mining Governance Project in the DRC, uh, in collaboration with Columbia Law School University Human Rights Clinic. She has created a central website um, on the extractive industries in the Katanga province at www.congomines.org. Uh, right now, it's all in French. Um, and it's serving as a major resource for all of those who are studying resource, natural resource uh, governance issues in the Congo. I hope you will visit the website. It will be in, available in English soon, but you can still see lots of good information in English even now. Um, she developed materials and trained civil society and government actors on mining law and policy and mapped mining companies in the Katangan Copper Belt. Prior to this work, she conducted research and analysis 
on the extractive industries for organizations such as the International Peace Information Service and Revenue Watch um, Institute. She holds a, a bachelor's and a JD, and a, I'm sorry, a master's and a JD from the Catholic University of Leuven and her LLM from Columbia University Law School. Welcome, Lise. Glad to have you. And David Potty, lastly, but not least, is the Associate Director of the Carter Center's Democracy Program and has worked on election and democracy programs for the Carter Center since 2002, and I'm standing in front of your chair, uh, <laughs> uh, in more than 20 countries in Africa, Asia, and the Americas. David Potty received his doctorate in political science from York University in Toronto, Prior to joining the center, he lived in South Africa for seven years, where he completed research for his doctoral dissertation on housing for the poor. He was a faculty member at Rhodes University, and in 1999, he joined the Electoral Institute of Southern Africa, a non-governmental organization based in Johannesburg, where he became the head of research. He has served on the editorial board of Southern Africa Report and the Journal of African Elections, and has published work on African politics, democracy, and development issues. I think you'll agree we have a, quite a fine panel, and these are all Carter Center staff. And we are very proud to have them with us here this evening. Thank you. And my name is Karen Ryan. I'm the director of the Human Rights Program here at the Carter Center. Um, and I'm really delighted to, to moderate this panel this evening. Uh, Congo is a, is a country of, of, uh, that's deep in my heart. When I was 18 years old, I moved to the country, lived there for near, uh, a year and a half um, as a young woman um, uh, on my own, and then my sister joined me uh, sometime later. And it was a really formative experience for me. I love the country. And I, what I want to do at the beginning of this conference, conversation is suspend everything that you think, as an American audience, you might be thinking about the Congo right now. Um, a lot of our press is very sensationalized about the truly horrific things that are happening there. But I just want to give you a teeny glimpse of the Congo that I love, where when I lived, I was able to hitchhike and make friends and travel throughout the country without any fear, uh, was welcomed in many homes, uh, treated very wonderfully. And um, you know, with, with the, the, the tremendous press that has been, has been uh, circulating, justifiably so, in, uh, with because of, of the horrors of what's happening uh, in the war zone, the issue of sexual violence has gained a lot of attention. And I just want to tell you one little story because I think it's important for us to realize that this country, the Congo, Zaire, uh, previously Zaire, was a country where there was really mostly peace and uh, the people of, of, of Zaire and the Congo have really managed to live through, despite many, many hardships. Um, this woman, friend of ours, her name is Julienne uh, Lusenge, and she works with women who are victims of sexual violence. And we were talking about this problem recently, and she just reminded me. You know, she said, when I was growing up, we didn't, you know, if there was a, a, an attack on a woman like this, our community would come together and we would address it together. Um, this is not, this is new, this thing, this horrific thing that's happened. It came from war. It came in a vacuum and it came from war. Um, and so what we've seen in the years that the Carter Center has been working since 2005, 2006, um, during this recent transition, is really the love and, and the hard work and the, the love that the, the people of the Congo have for their country and the country that they want to build. And that's, that sense of purpose and, and, and this kind of miracle of getting through 
um, that the people of the Congo have done through all of its hardships has always, um, I would say, woven its way through all of the Carter Center's experience, even recently, that you could see how dedicated people are to building democracy and to building a free society. Um, so we want to, um, there are very rich issues that we'll talk about, but I wanted to start with that, um, that hopeful feeling. Um, but also, um, just, just a teeny bit of history, not, not long, um, but just re reminding ourselves about the country and, and its context. Reminding ourselves that from 18, the late 18, 1885 until 1908, this was a personal fiefdom, a property of King Leopold of, of Belgium, where under, during that period, some 10 million uh, people perished, Africans perished because of the, the rubber uh, trade and the rubber extraction and the, the horrific uh, abuses perpetrated there in order to extract rubber as the auto industry was, was beginning. This was the beginning of the modern exploitation of, of the Congo. And then after that, of course, the Belgian, uh, 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 in 1908, Belgium took it over as a colony and, of course, uh, ruled very, very, uh, 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 in, a, in a very dictatorial fashion, not in a democratic fashion at all. And not till 1960 did we have democracy uh, with elections, with a popular movement, a popular uprising that led to independence. Um, and then in 1960, uh, a popular leader, Patrice Lumumba, who was beloved, a very charismatic leader of the Congo, um, was elected and appointed prime minister. And then um, not long after that, uh, because of the fears of the Cold War and the fears of communism, uh, Belgium and the United States uh, colluded in the kidnapping and assassination of, L of Lumumba by... Uh, uh, forces that were loyal to the military, that were loyal to foreign powers. So this is the recent, this is bringing us up to uh, independence. But since then, um, after the, the, the overthrow of the democratic government, we had a, a dictatorship uh, that was supported by the West, again, as part of the Cold War. Um, and uh, at the end of that, at the end of, of uh, Mobutu, who was the dictator, at the end of his life, there was the, the spillover from the Rwanda conflict in 1994, 95, 96, until the, the invasion of neighboring armies in 96, 97, um, leading to, as we know, some now somewhere between three and a half to five and a half million deaths in the region. Um, so the, the recent events that we're going to talk about and the work that we're going to talk about has to do with this sort of traumatic, post-traumatic period uh, of where this trauma has, has really been thrust upon this country um, because of this explosion of genocide in, in Rwanda spilling over and becoming part of the dynamic there in uh, spreading, having its, its implications throughout the Congo, its, its uh, reverberations. So the, what we're going to talk about is what happened next after the peace process. There was, as part of a peace process, there was a power sharing agreement, which was to lead to an election in 2006. Now this election, I'm, I'm gonna turn now to David Potty because uh, in 2006, David Potty led the election mission um, there. And what we saw was really a fantastic experience where people really mobilized, the international community mobilized together with the Congolese people um, and managed what I call a bridge out of chaos because that election, 2006, was a bridge out of chaos. 
and it succeeded. And tell us, David, tell us a little bit about that experience, and then we can contrast it with this recent election that I think everybody is interested in hearing about. Can we, because I, I want to remind ourselves that this was really well done not so long ago. Yes, I, um, I think it's, well, there's maybe a couple of, of key points. One is that, as you quite rightly say, you know, you, it's important to remember the context of uh, a long, enduring war, dissolution, really, of the state and of all state institutions in the Congo. And so the 2006 elections were themselves a product that came out of that war. Uh, and those nego the negotiations that made those elections possible were not necessarily, you know, um, uh, you could say, not necessarily a happy family. Mm -hmm. These were formerly warring parties. These were essentially competing warlords who had fought their way to the bargaining table. Um, granted, uh, many of the institutions that they created um, are institutions that people from a democratic country would recognize, whether it's, you know, they had an interim constitution, they created an election authority, they created a media uh, authority, and so on. But what I think was a very determining um, influence was the role of the international community. Um, the Congo was by then um, hosting a United Nations peacekeeping mission, which endures today. But uh, even more importantly for our purposes, talking about the election, they also were open to an enormous amount of international assistance, both in terms of election observers, international and domestic, but also technical assistance that really helped to make the election commission uh, a leading you know, independent, with some criticisms, uh, new national institution that, con that Congolese citizens were really taking it on faith and putting their faith that that institution would faithfully record their vote. Um, problems aside, and is where I would agree with you, you know, it did create, it wasn't perfect, but it did create a bridge, it created a transition out of an alternative that was much, much worse. Right, so can you give us just a couple of, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering a story, I'm remembering an experience I had where this young man who was the head of a polling a center, voting center, um, held on to his, his ballot boxes as if they were his children. And he slept with them for days in the collection centers. He got on the truck. He actually hired his own truck to make it to the compilation center. This was the kind of, of determination that people showed. And, and, but also, there were checks. There were vital checks in place in 2006 um, that maybe you could talk about. How did, how did the Congolese people, how did they know that when they, after they went and voted, they cast their vote, there were party witnesses, they all were able to check the, 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 the tallies in the voting centers. How, what are the kinds of checks that had in place? And then maybe you could kind of contrast it to what happened here, and then I'd, I'd really like you to give us a kind of a, your own view of what happened just last month or two. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, there, there, are, there certainly are lots of continuities, and this, you know, in some ways, many of the procedures that were put into place um, to try to respect the integrity of the vote in 2006, um, practices like making sure that each voter dips their, their finger into indelible ink, which stains their finger so they can't wipe it off, and, and that then creates a physical sign that, look, I, you know, people are proud of it as well, look, I voted. Mm -hmm. um, but it also then creates a check so that you can't go and vote a second time 
so proud that you vote two or three or four times. Uh, <laughs> there also was uh, a voters list, and that's always a difficult thing to manage, um, that enables the election workers to check off your name and you sign your name next to it, or a mark is made, and again, that can help to uh, inhibit multiple voting. Um, the, um, I think though, and, and those practices were you know, still on the books and supposed to be reproduced in 2011. Uh, I think you know, our observers uh, look for those kinds of you know, logistical procedural uh, practices, and that's why we have checklists so that we are applying that evaluation consistently. You know, it's a yes or a no type answer. Are they applying the ink consistently to voters? We saw lots and lots of instances where that was not happening. Um, similarly, election uh, witnesses, whether domestic or international observers or representatives of candidates, are entitled to go away from the polling station with a copy of the official results. Mm -hmm. Again, there weren't enough copies this time around. In 2006, there were. In 2011, there were not. Uh, and so the posting of the, the results can be a really important uh, way to show to the community, look, you know, this is, this is what was uh, counted here, this is what happened here on this day. The, I guess, you know, the thing that really felt different, and you know, it's hard to evaluate, but it is this kind of ephemeral quality of hope and confidence. And you felt that in 2006. You know, that wasn't, it wasn't fake, it wasn't made up, it wasn't perfect, but it was, there was almost a tangible quality to that. Um, that was not the case this November. Really, if I were to you know, uh, put a single word on it, it was, you know, it was volatility. You know, this was a population that really did not trust um, what they had seen their elected leaders doing, including the president. They did not trust the election commission, and they did not trust the police or the security forces. And so there's a whole climate of suspicion that uh, makes you know, even the most robust set of checks and balances can never accommodate for every um, eventuality, every effort to try to game the system. And I think we saw a lot of efforts to game the system. But, but let's get specific. For example, you, you described the situation in the compilation centers, where in 2006, observers were allowed to watch as the, as the results came in and were compiled. Um, or give me you know, one or two of those examples that are so stark that made you realize that, that there were things happening that could not be, that couldn't be watched. Right, well, think of, if people can imagine a space such as this, or for those who are uh, watching on the web, imagine sort of you know, in an ideal set of circumstances for Congo given its infrastructure, like an empty warehouse you know, that's maybe 100 feet long by 100 feet wide with no furnishing, you know, very minimal lighting, maybe it's got a dirt floor, maybe it has a concrete floor. So it's a temporary place that is set up to receive, you know, say, 100 polling stations. That's 100 polling station presidents or the, num you know, the trucks that are needed to bring that, security, the workers to receive it, and then bags upon bags of counted ballots, uncounted ballots, unused ballots, um, ballot boxes, plus the results. And all of those people, in theory, are arriving in a pretty short order. And in this case, they were, imagine it as your worst grocery store checkout nightmare <laughs> in which there's one teller and everybody's trying to buy their Christmas turkey. 
and the lineup is out the door, and you, know, you can't have Christmas without your turkey. Well, you can't have an election without receiving the results. And so those election workers were forced to stay outside until they could be let in uh, to the, the center. So there were piles of bags. Like we were literally walking on mountains 10 feet, 20 feet high piled of these bags. These are people's votes. And, um, and so it's, it's in that sense that, you know, the kind of the, just the, there's a physical disorganization, but that physical disorganization had an underlying um, whether it was suspicion or animosity even from on the part not only of you know, citizens vis-a-vis -vis their election commission, it's their election commission after all, but also even among the election workers themselves and certainly um, against us as international observers. That isn't to say that was a universal experience. Uh, in many cases, observers had perfectly fine access, could see most, not quite everything. Um, there were processes that were you know, basically kept off limits. Makes you wonder what's going on in those places that are off limits. Um, are, is paperwork being changed? Is something different being scanned than was recorded? Um, is there a 10 or a 7 being put in front of a 6? And there would appear to be uh, a great many instances where that happened. Now, before I go to Sophie, because I want to talk to Sophie about the, the wonderful work that was done by the domestic observers as well, um, the, the, for the, the guests here, I think there was a handout that shows we had two pages. We couldn't project it on the screen. But um, there were some tally sheets that came in that were really remarkable um, to show why, just why one might be a bit suspicious about what you're just saying, yeah. which is whether you could just add a number a few hundreds in front of a, a, the last two digits. Um, so if you have it in your handout, and for those on, online, um, you won't be able to see it. But <laughs> um, you know, there's this, here's a page of Kinshasa results. This is a, a stronghold of the opposition. And you have this sort of, these are the different individual polling stations. And in, here's a, a column that has Kabila, the incumbent, will have 60 votes here. And then the main opposition leader was Chisiketi with 140 votes. Okay, that seems realistic for a, a, a voting day number. Yeah. Maybe it's suppressed. There, we heard re reports of suppressed voter uh, uh, suppression of votes voting in Kinshasa. So that's kind of normal looking. Um, on the other side, the, this is just one page of. I think it was. I counted something like 80 pages of this kind of result, which is your second page, where you have, uh, this is a part of Katanga, this is one part of Katanga where the results for the, the incumbent, Kabila, go from you know, the 300s to the 500s. Here you have 1,100 votes, 11,285. And over here, all, for every opposition candidate, there is 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, including for Chisiketi, the main opposition leader. And this is something like 80 pages that look like this in the in the official tab, in the, in the official table that was published by the uh, uh, Elections Commission. So you might understand why the Carter Center statement said that the uh, uh, vote, the vote turnout, it was, in, it was impossibly high in some areas. Mm -hmm. So this is what impossibly high looks like. 
right? I don't think humankind has seen that as ever being true, something like this. Um, so that's, that's just a little piece of uh, memorabilia for you to take home with, but um, talk about that for a minute, yeah. and then I want to ask Sophie. Yeah, I think, well, a couple, there's a couple of um, important comments. The first is, you know, in one sense, job well done to the Election Commission for publishing the numbers. Um, the Carter Center has observed many, many elections in which the only numbers you ever see or the population ever sees are the ones, you know, the totals, like two million votes for candidate X, three million for candidate Y. There was a lot of pressure and a lot of effort put into let's make sure that the votes on the basis of polling stations are recorded and reported. Um, that was done. Um, now, be careful what you wish for, because as you point out, in example after example, you can start to look and go, huh, this is, it looks a little weird. Um, and it didn't take very much. There were 169 centers for tabulating the votes across the whole country for the presidential and legislative election. Two of them, for example, in Katanga province in, in the east where President Kabila has a lot of support, recorded, um, you could say impossibly or absurdly high voter turnout of 100% or more than 100%, um, with 100% of the votes going to him. It is impossible in any uh, sense of the word. I have used the metaphor of, um, I didn't get 100% attendance at my wedding from the people who were RSVP'd for whom I paid $100 a head. 10 of them did not show up. So they were bought and paid for. If those were voters who were bought and paid for, why didn't they show up in the other guy's column? And so you saw, when you see zero after zero, um, that raises an alarm bell. That's 500,000 votes, half a million votes out of 18 million total cast um, that really are questionable and in plain terms, illegal. They are fraudulently recorded. Um, when you compare them to then the legislative results, which are beginning to be announced only now, there are hundreds and thousands of votes spread out among many other candidates. Under, under, across hundreds of candidates, this is an election with 1,500 legislative candidates, 11 presidential candidates. People are just not that good at ticking the, even if every single person was healthy on that day, perfectly mobile, no one was sick, no one twisted their ankle, everybody found their polling station, everybody was on the voter list, which was not the case almost anywhere else in the country. The fact of every single person ticking the correct box um, is mind-boggling. It's just impossible that that would happen. And so those kinds of enormously bright red herrings or that's probably not the right term, <laughs> red flags. They're not red herrings, they're red flags. Um, really then cause you to start to look. And there are many, many other cases of not quite 100%, but very high 90s percent turnout. Um, we calculated some total of at least 1.8 million votes uh, for President Kabila that really look um, suspicious. There are suspicious looking votes for other candidates, but not on the same scale, not with the same coincidence of factors, uh, particularly, as you note, for Etienne Chitsuketi, who was the second place finisher, and you know, in the view of many, and in his own recent auto-proclamation, as, um, in a sense, he has self-proclaimed himself also as president. Right. right, so we have 
both the, the international presence that is there, and it's very important because the international community is, is looking and, and the Carter Center has a reputation for, you know, calling it as they see it, you know, sort of speaking the truth when it's difficult. So the Carter Center makes this very strong statement um, that, uh, that does have an impact globally. Um, also, you know, the Carter Center had the great privilege to work with an, uh, a, a network of, of NGOs, Congolese organizations, um, that Sophie um, helped lead or lead the, the partnership on behalf of the Carter Center, um, the effort that was uh, undertaken by the Catholic uh, Coalition, the Catholic Church. So Sophie, talk to us about the great efforts that were made by the Congolese organizations and the, the Catholic Church in particular um, to make sure that they had observers at, at polling stations. And then I'd, I'd like you to, to talk about the, um, you know, just a few days after um, uh, the results, we had a very, very strong statement from the Cardinal, Cardinal Monsanguo, uh, calling into question the legitimacy of the, or we're actually stating that this was not uh, true, these results were not true. Um, so talk to us first about the great efforts that were made really at, at the, the local level, mm -hmm. and then, uh, yeah. I, I think What's important is to, to realize that with the, with the erosion of, of state institutions during the, the Mobutu years, uh, what was eroded as well was civil society. And so um, you, you have a, a very weak uh, civil society in DRC, um, but that is very engaged and very motivated. Um, and so for the 2006 elections, there were already a lot of uh, domestic platforms who were undertaking uh, some observation work. And when we decided to, uh, to support them this time around, um, we selected uh, as partner the Catholic Church because it has a, a, a very large network uh, across the country. It reaches out and has ongoing activities um, during, uh, during normal period and during election periods. They also undertook a lot of civic education activities. So we decided to support them. Um, and we trained uh, 6,400 domestic observers. Uh, through a cascade training method with uh, 300 supervisors and then uh, them going out and training uh, 6,000 observers out in the field. And um, it, it was incredible, again, to see the motivation of, of the observers on the ground, um, their willingness to, to be there and to understand what elections mean, to understand the different processes. And it's not simple. If you take the level edu of education in DRC and, and the people you're working with, um, you know, the selection of observers in itself, 6,400 observers out in the field, was not that simple. Um, you have people who have, um, you know, primary education level at best and who will be observing quite complex processes. processes. So um, it, it was very um, interesting uh, to, 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 to gather, to, to see that interest in observing the elections and to build that capacity to understand that and, and, and deploy these people. Um, so the, the Catholic Church, in that sense, um, plays its role as a civil society actor, as a watchdog. And it's important during an election process, but also beyond. And, 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 uh, and we'll see, uh, I think it's important to talk about what their role will be now that the elections, uh, now that we've, we've seen the outcome and that there are provincial and local elections that are gonna be coming up and that the international presence will be a little lesser. So the role of domestic actors is extremely important in that regard. Um, can I but, ask you, let me yeah. back up, because how, when the uh, observers were deployed, mm -hmm. talk about what did they do, how did they observe, what did they observe, what did they look for, and how did, um, how did their results, how, how were their results pulled together um, in a way that could sort of cull some information that was useful 
to the network to be able to, to tell what happened. So what was interesting is that we, we introduced uh, for the first time in DRC a system, uh, an SMS system for them to send the results of their observation. So all of the observers, the 6,400 observers, went out with checklists, as uh, observers will usually do. And they sent in uh, throughout the day, throughout the, the polling day, um, their answers by SMS. So we, we, got, uh, we had 84 data clerks entering all of this information they, that we were receiving. So we were able to see where there were problem areas uh, during the, the polling day and after gathered the information and have sufficient statistics for about 1,410 of the 6,000 polling stations for we, which we had complete responses about what, what went wrong during the polling day and, and what was done right. Um, so we, we got quite a lot of, um, of uh, responses of uh, harassment and intimidation of voters during polling day in about 24% of cases for the 1,410 polling stations. Um, observers were by and large allowed in the polling stations to observe, which was good, uh, but there were, uh, there were many problems in the processes. Um, and that had to do also with the fact that the, the Electoral Commission started the training of its election agents very late. And so there, there were problems in that regard. Now in terms of gathering all of that information and making a statement, the first statement uh, with regards to the polling day processes um, that, the that the Catholic Church published um, said that despite a number of problems, the, res the, the process was credible. And this is what most international observation uh, missions said as well about polling day. Um, and so um, what happened after is that um, they, they, with the information they had, they analyzed it further and they decided that it was important to put out a stronger statement with regards to what had gone wrong, all the flaws during the process, and to concentrate more on recommendations that could be made for the future. Um, Cardinal Mosengo's uh, statement was indeed very strong, um, but I think it was more of a political statement than based on the results of the domestic observation effort. Because by the time he made that statement, um, we had uh, the domestic observers were not sent to the, to the compilation centers. And so that statement was, again, I think he, he was analyzing what had come in from the international observation missions more than the domestic observation mm -hmm. effort. Um, but it, it is the domestic observation effort, again, is, is the first time that um, a domestic platform undertakes, undertakes such a huge effort to observe elections. And it is a first building block of what can happen in the future and of the role that civil society can have in uh, providing checks and balances um, that cannot only come from international organizations, but also have to come from the Congolese themselves. Yeah, so before we, we move, I want to move to questions, but um, just, just a little bit about, before, before we do, we, I really want to introduce Lise and, and talk about how this relates to the sort of the challenge that the Congo faces of building the democratic institutions, building um, you know, a culture of democracy and strong institutions like a judiciary, like the parliament that will have an oversight function over government functions. Uh, a police force that respects human rights, all these institutions that are, are trying to be born in the Congo. Uh, we're gonna talk about that maybe more in the, in the Q&A, but before we go to Q&A, I wanna talk, to, have Lise talk a, a little bit also about this work that we're doing in mining transparency because right after the election in 2006, we realized that if we really want to get to the, the heart of the challenge for the, for the Congo, it's about, uh, it's going to be about uh, helping the country 
doing what we can to ensure that the country is able to maximize its own great wealth for its own benefit. Um, something like, well, one estimate I've seen says $24 trillion of natural wealth in the ground of the, of the Congo. It is one of the richest plots of land um, on the planet, yet the country is still made poor um, from, uh, from governance, from bad governance. So we undertook this program, and Elise, why don't you talk about, uh, about its purpose. How do you deal with the transparency in, uh, of the management of natural resources in a country so vast as the Congo? There's been some you know, uh, recent publicity around these issues in, in the war zones, but as the country as a whole, if you look at the entire territory, how do you do it? How, wh wh where do you begin? Well, I think um, uh, contrary maybe to, to what the media attention, as you, as you mentioned, um, mostly refers to probably an in international press and in, in US press in, in particular, we decided to focus on a very specific region that is not necessarily that war zone, but that has more potential to actually provide the, the building blocks that are necessary to, to as, as you said, to build that bridge, to, to not just have an initial election, to have maybe a second election, but actually to, to manage the country for five years long to actually um, get to social programs, get to health, get to education within the country. And so we decided to focus um, on Katanga province, the same province that has been a bit problematic um, recently, because it has a vast potential um, for industrial mining and therefore for, um, for revenue generation. So what we did initially <clears throat> was a bit like the election, like the elections. We was, it was to monitor a process. Um, the country decided very early on um, after the elections in 2006 to go and look at the mining contracts, to go and look at the, the deals that they had signed before the elections, during the war, during the transition, where there was a lot of need for quick cash, and that had a reputation to not be very fair, so the contracts with, with the foreign investors. And they had the reputation that they would not be able to provide enough revenue to the state to actually um, build that bridge. Um, so what we did, a bit like elections, was basically to play a role of monitoring and, and, and observing and trying to see in collaboration with, with Columbia Law School um, how that process went about, um, especially during the review of all these contracts, 60 contracts. So that involved looking at those contracts, pushing for publication at first. We have to know what is in these terms. We need transparency. We need to know what the terms of the deal are, but then also analyzing these and trying to see how they could um, how they could become better, and advising the government on how they could how they could take that forward. Now, I think the the problem with that process is a bit like with with the 2011 elections, is that there was maybe observers that could come in during the polling stations, during that first phase where people go in and vote, where people basically public publish the initial mining contracts, but where the problems have started um, increasing is when they came to the compilation center. Basically, when they, when they started putting together the results of that process and basically renegotiating the contracts, trying to make them better. But at that phase, transparency decreased. Um, and at, at, at this point, we actually don't know still to date, five years later, what, what the end result is of this process. And so one of the, one of the points where we've been trying to, to, to do some, some transparency advocacy specifically is, is to get those new contracts or the new versions of those contracts published. Yes, and so now uh, we, we can't show it. I wanted to show you all. Lise has been responsible for the development of this uh, terrific website called congominds.org, 
which I encourage you to look at. And the purpose of it, again, is to put all the information out there for people to research existing law, the existing de uh, contract, what we know. There's a map on there where you can click on and see what mining activities are going on and learn uh, about re revenue flows, et cetera. Um, and we're at the beginning of a process. Hopefully over, over years, civil society will make use of it. The parliament will make use of it to, to exercise uh, oversight. Um, so, so again, you know, we're back to this idea of institutions. You know, when, we, when we're thinking, when the Carter Center, when we're thinking about how can an organization like the Carter Center or any other international organization really help, uh, be of help, and not just be sort of, you know, someone from the outside that comes in and imposes its ideas, but really a partner. Um, and, you know, part of, of our thinking is, what is it that will enable Congolese citizens to build these institutions. Are we helping that process or not? Do no harm is first. And I think this might take us to, I'm gonna open it up for questions, but I'd like to encourage people to think about what next, because we're left now in, a, I think, a, a, still a political crisis with the lack of legitimacy of, of the recent election. Voix de Saint-Bois, the very well-known um, Human Rights Organization in Congo, it means the voice of the voiceless, called yesterday for a new, entirely new election. Personally, I think that's the only way to solve it. Uh, call me foolish, but you know, I talked about the bridge from out of chaos that was the 2006 elections. Howard French, the New York Times journalist that, was, that covered the Congo for years, wrote a recent piece in The Atlantic um, where he said, this election was a bridge, to stay with the bridge analogy, which is a, a bridge that was paid for but never built. And that's true. We spent a billion dollars on the 2006 elections, but we spent a half a billion on these elections, but we didn't get half the result. You don't get half of a legitimate result. It has to be legitimate or not. So personally, I was, I was interested to see that Bois de Saint-Bois called for a new election. I think it's, you know, a far-fetched idea that the international community would, would support it, but I don't know what the alternative is. So, um, so we've got that political crisis, but I also don't wanna lose the opportunity to talk with, with Lise and Sophie also about other opportunities for institution building in the Congo, because this is going to be over, very, very important um, over, you know, not the next year or the next five years, but the next 20 years. Uh, is really, isn't that how we should be thinking? If we really are in partnership, is, is something like a 20-year plan to build these important institutions and functions. Um, did you wanna, Sophie, say something about that before we go to questions? Yeah. No, I just wanted to, to say that what is envoi, so this uh, Congolese NGO called for that, but, uh, but most of, of the, the human rights NGOs actually did. Uh, mm -hmm. And they've been sending uh, information and they, 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 they are also asking themselves, what do we do next? Now, okay, we, we've, we've all written these statements, we've made different declarations. What comes next? What can we do? Uh, again, civil society organizations are, are working with uh, very limited means. Um, they don't have uh, the tools, they, don't, they, they lack sometimes working methods, but the, their engagement is there. Uh, and I think um, that um, 
our, our presence in DRC and, and, and the expectations um, because of the way, uh, the, the respect that uh, we, we have from civil society actors and from certain uh, government institutions as well. Um, it, it's an important question that we have to ask ourselves. And I, I think two important words that we've been repeating is accountability and transparency. This is what it's about. Uh, it's about um, getting the information out there so that local civil society actors can have access to that information, can understand it, and can use it. Uh, and then, little by little, that they themselves can put it out there so that other people can understand it and create the, this, uh, this uh, uh, movements exactly. uh, that can, you know, uh, they can lobby, they can advocate for themselves, and they don't, they need less and less the presence of international organizations. And that this is what we're striving for, uh, I think, in, in DRC. Yes, to, to work ourselves out of business. Yes. <laughs> Um, so with that, I'd like to encourage um, some questions from the audience. If nobody walks to a microphone, we'll just keep talking up here. You know, you don't have to worry about that. I don't see anybody walking. Oh, there's some brave soul. Please introduce yourself and keep your, your questions uh, pretty short. Hi, my name is Julia Charles. Um, I have a question for Lise and Sophie about the Carter Center and how its approach to human rights is unique when dealing with um, mining transparency. How is the, our approach unique? Um, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure if it's unique across the world. I think that's a, that's a, for European, that's a bit of a big word, <laughs> which I, 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 may not, I may not take. Um, but I think at least in, in Congo, what is, what is quite, um, quite unique is that we try to one, look at, a, at, a, at an area that I think um, is a bit underexplored. Um, I, think, I think the East, rightly so, gets quite a bit of attention because of the war, because of, of the, the quite um, deadly link, uh, at least partially deadly link between, between uh, conflict and, and minerals. But I think we look at, at, a, at a piece that is, that is um, at least as important on a nation, on a nation level. So that's, that's one area. And I think the second uh, area, and that relates very closely um, to human rights, is that we try to work with, with local actors um, and we try to, to strengthen their capacity in areas that are rather technical and at first very unsexy. Um, I mean, mining contracts, I, I sh maybe I should have shown one. Um, it's very unsexy. Um, it's very, you know, it's, it's boring language. It's full of twists and turns. And, and we try to, to take some courageous people who are willing to, to crack that down and, and to try and understand what's in there to really understand what the, what the country may be getting, should be getting, uh, could be getting. Um, and I think that's, that's quite, a, quite a particular approach. And then maybe adding on to that, it's, it's, it's not only understanding these mining contracts, but understanding what impact they have on the communities. And that's right. a very important part of the work that, that you're doing in, in Katanga as well, is what are the human rights impacts for communities at, 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 at all levels. Uh, and so we, we've, had, uh, we've had researchers on their motorbikes go out uh, in remote areas of Katanga to take soil samples, to take water samples, and, and to, to study what is the impact that these uh, companies are having uh, for the communities living uh, around the companies. Um, oh, yes, please. Hello, I'm Jeff Austin. I'm a law student at Georgia State. Uh -huh. I'm wondering whether the, um, the new, after the elections, we might expect to see the mining contracts renegotiated. Um, is that something we expect, or is it, are they likely to be, are they stuck with what they have already? And is the transparency meant to influence renegotiations, or just future contracts, or just getting the benefits of the contracts that are that have already been signed. Um, so, so 
I can't really comment on, on like whether this government, <laughs> what's going to happen um, with, um, with this election and what the results will be on the government. But I do think that it actually, that it actually matters um, who's, who's at the top of, of the country. And if these results gradually get accepted or if, if there's no change in the current um, Supreme Court decision that, pres that President Kabila got re-elected, um, I don't envision a major renegotiation um, because pretty much the government continues. And I think they've had their, their process. Um, that doesn't mean that um, all contracts today are um, fair or good uh, for the country. Um, one, as I said, well, for the renegotiated contracts, we don't really know, except for a few, um, what is in there. Um, so it's difficult to say if they're actually good for the country or not. That's, that's one point. But then more recently, and that's, and that's ongoing, ongoing research, there's been, there's been a few cases that have come to light that are highly problematic that happened either during this renegotiation of the past government or that are un independent from, from that process. And where recently uh, a UK um, member of parliament said that basically the country lost 5.5 billion. Now that may seem quite a, a small amount. I mean, my country, Belgium, had to save 7 billion um, you know, for, this, for this budget. But this is a country that actually has a budget of 7 billion. Um, so, so these cases keep going. Now, what are we trying to do is, is, is at least try to, to document um, not necessarily all the problematic cases. We don't want to focus. We're, I don't think we're an NGO that wants to, to look this is bad and, and denounce. Um, I don't think that that's our role. I think just as with elections, we're there to monitor and we're, we're there to say this is, this is going good and this is, this is going not very good. Um, so I don't know if that answer, answered your, your question. If, and in terms of, you know, we also at this point, we don't know what the government in some senses will look like. The legislative elections uh, are still being tabulated um, at the moment. The provisional results are due to be announced uh, this coming Friday, the, the 13th. It's an ominous uh, date. Um, some of the provisional results have been announced uh, from the legislative elections, and as we've been saying, you know, the, there too, uh, the uh, transparency element to the announcement of those results is both a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing in that it gives us more to look at. It's a potential curse in that, um, as in the example of, of you know, those places where there were impossibly high or unbelievably high or consistent voter turnout or voter outcomes uh, in the presidential race. And then you look at the legislative and there's this uh, incredible diversity. Um, there are 278 registered political parties in the DRC, plus a great many independents. There were 18 and a half thousand candidates for 500 seats. Um, that makes it probably harder than getting into the MBA or NB, NBA, getting an MBA is a dime a dozen. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's, um, it remains to be seen what will be the composition of the legislature. Now, what does also need to be, of course, considered is that many of those political parties are in a, uh, open or shady alliances with one another. Uh, and some are known as satellite parties. Sometimes they're called briefcase parties. They're no bigger than the briefcase that the president of the party, who's its only member, um, carries. And, and so sorting out even these, what these legislative results will mean, even when if you take them at face value, 
And then, of course, going through, like with any normal election, well, who are the incumbents who've been returned? Who are the new people? Uh, are there new realignments? And this will have an impact not only, of course, on, on extractive industries and their regulation, but all the rest of social policy, health policy, education, um, the, the, the foreign policy and defense policy of the country. That's right. Yeah, I may want to. I may want to give an example that is that is quite, I think, illustrative for, for what you asked. Um, during the past, during the representation process, actually, um, there was one specific company that had a lot of problems um, with with the process, and that basically saw two projects, um, one contract cancelled and another project um, taken um, for, by by the Congolese government. So for sure, they weren't um, getting along very well. They had two arbitration cases going on in Paris and, and D.C. about this to claim back um, their properties. Um, meantime, the government already reattributed these, these mines to, to another company, a very, a very uh, big company. And, and for me, what is quite significant is that um, I think about a week ago, um, this company that got, that got affected by, by the revisitation process so, came to a deal with the company that overtook um, the two mines. And I think that's significant for, for your question about, you know, with this, with this new re-election, is that going to have an impact? Will there be new renegotiations? I think the company seems to, I mean, I'm not speaking for the company. I don't know what, what they're thinking, but I, it looks like they've given up and they, and they see Kabila continuing for, for another five years. Yes, sir. Uh, good evening. My name is Shion Demi. I'm from Emory University. Welcome. Um, I'm a Nigerian student. Um, Jean-Francois Bayat is a French intellectual, I don't know if you're familiar with his work, uh, called The Illusion of Cultural Identity. Uh, he's done extensive work in Africa. And he, he made the argument that it seems that the provinces in Congo are sem semi-autonomous. And um, I want to ask if, uh, without any real political connection to the center, central government, is this an issue of legitimacy or a lack thereof? Is which issue an uh, issue of legitimacy? The lack, of the the uh, the the problem of disconnection uh, between the central government in Congo and the uh, comprising government. Is there is there constitutional is there constitutional theory on the theoretical part? Is there a constitutional issue that has not been implemented in terms of political administration? Yeah, sure. Do you, do you want to? Yeah. Um, well. I guess a, a couple of things come to mind. Yeah, I, I think absolutely the characterization of um, a very fragmented, uh, you know, it's very large geographically country, very populous, but also fragmented. There are very few um, national institutions that work. Um, there is not a national highway network. There is not a national railroad network, and there is not a national um, air connection or air, airline network. There are bits and pieces of many of those things, but there certainly is nothing that looks you know, um, sort of conscious, rational, planned, <laughs> and operational, let alone safe. And, and, and the same kind of analogy that you could draw to, say, a highway network applies also to the structure of government in the DRC. And, and so, yes, you have a national government. Yes, you have provincial governments. The provincial governments are you know, much, much less capable of um, doing almost anything in terms of providing services or representation uh, or um, even really having functioning you know, 
public spaces, public buildings, uh, with you know, trained people who are doing whatever it is they're supposed to be doing, whether it's education or health or mining and so forth. So there's a real fragmentation. I think that you know, there is supposed to be a, a, a great deal of reform ongoing with the creation of many new provinces. Um, this has not happened yet. There are supposed to be provincial elections. This has not happened yet. Um, I think the fact that a great many Congolese still chose to participate in these elections, compromised though they may have been in advance of election day and as um, compromised as the results may be, the fact is that 18 million people did choose to vote. Um, they whether they felt a very intense personal connection with the presidential candidates or not is, is hard to say. Um, and that's where I think you know, the real, one of the real challenges um, that all of us have been speaking about in terms of, well, what about the next steps and what are the consequences for a country and for a people when you have um, an election that is supposed to be this nationally binding event, one of the few that ever happens for the country. It's one of you know, the few opportunities for everybody to participate in the exact same thing as all of their neighbors across the country. I remember in 2005 with the constitutional referendum, there was a lot of skepticism, do you remember, about whether it would happen, whether it could be carried off because of the vast territory, et cetera. And it, it, it went very well. Um, and you know, this is, for me, one of the tragedies of, of, of the recent history of the Congo is that it did have a nice national identity. There are some countries that were very fragmented, as, you know, much, more, much more fragmented um, along either ethnic lines or um, different reasons that would be fragmented. But one thing that Mobutu did, I think, accomplish, Lumumba, first Lumumba and then Mobutu, did have, create a sense of na nationhood. Um, and, and maintained that uh, sense of nationhood. Um, and 2006, 2005 and 2006 were these very affirming experiences as a nation. So um, the, the war coming from 96, you know, the, 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 the violence from 96 onward was really, there, while there were some ethnic minority issues in the East related to the Bani Malenge population in the East, this was very much, I don't want to say manufactured because it wasn't totally manufactured, but it was very much hyped in the same way as the, the Serbian nationalism in Yugoslavia was hyped in the early 90s. The post-genocide situation in Eastern Congo was exploited uh, so that so ethnicity became more important than it had been. Not that there weren't problems, but it was very much exploited. So those issues were there, but they were uh, taken, they were they were pushed um, for other purposes. So I, I just don't think those um, uh, issue, the fractious issues, uh, are the same um, in in the Congo. Um, but um, we do have the problem of implementing the constitutional mandate to devolve the the, the provinces into the new uh, configuration that's never been done. And this is a problem of legitimacy. Um, so you, you still have this constitutional mandate to reconfigure the provinces, et cetera, and to devolve power to the provinces so that each province should keep 40% of the revenue from their natural resources. This has not happened. This is, this is mandated by the Constitution, and it hasn't happened yet. So this is part of the legitimacy problem that you're pointing to. Thank you. 
Yes, my name is Uchudi Njekembo. I'm uh, a student at Emory University. I'm from the Democratic Republic of Congo, special from Kinshasa. Welcome. Uh, uh, let me say something before my question. I was studying in Zimbabwe where they were going to the election and uh, President Mugabe discussing with the opposition party said that I don't see, I don't, we don't need the outside observer to come to our election because there's nothing we can expect from them. For, for me personally, it was like a, a foolishness because why not willing to have an outside observer? That's, uh, I, I could not understand. But today, uh, from what has been going in my country, I'm coming back to reflect on what Mugabe said at that time. My concern is that uh, through my readings, listening, there were a lot of irregularities in election that has taken place in, in Congo. And today, Congo has got two presidents, the one uh, who proclaimed himself and another who, I don't know if it's officially. My question is, where is the voice of those observer, outside observer in what is going on in Congo? We had observer from uh, uh, Europe. I was listening to a woman who, who said, How we are limited to observe that we are limited. The rest is belonging to uh, the Congolese themselves. I was not happy with that. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know if uh, the Jimmy Carter Center, they went to observe. The rest belonged to the Congolese. The American, they went to observe. The rest belonged to the Congolese. Do you think that is helpful or not helpful? Well, I think I, thank you for, for your comment and, and, and for the question. No, it, it, it isn't necessarily helpful. I think it is very useful to have international observers. Um, and, and, and I think the, the statement made by the Carter Center uh, with regards to the elections, certainly um, in terms of, uh, of telling it like it was, like we observed, was, was extremely important and set the pace for, for a lot of other declarations that came about. Um, but it isn't the only thing that is needed, and, and this is one of the reasons why we have an ongoing presence in DRC, um, is because we do ask ourselves that question, what comes next? Um, and what we see as the next steps um, within uh, the, our mandate, within, uh, with, within the limited means that, that, that we have, is to help civil society actors um, to play a, more, uh, a greater role in building a democracy, in good governance. Um, and it's not some, there, there are no magic recipes. It's not something that's going to change from one day to the next. Um, so it, it is a long-term process, but we are prepared uh, to, to, uh, to um, support uh, local actors in that process. Um, so I, I know it's not going to answer directly your question. It is something that takes time. Building democracies takes time. Um, but I think it's important to have both. It's, it's not sufficient to just have one side, certainly. But Yeah, maybe just to add, in terms of the complementarity of 
both uh, domestic and international observers. You could think of it uh, almost in terms of there being, you know, whether it's three layers or three pieces to the pie, um, the domestic observers are by far the most important in the sense of being the people of the country uh, itself, and they are hopefully and generally far more numerous than international observers ever could be. Um, and if you divide that further, though, there are not only what we call you know, non-partisan domestic observers, but then, of course, also the representatives of the candidates themselves are members of political parties who, in the case of the Congo, had a right to have a witness per polling station. They could have two and they could take turns. Um, and so if you start to do the math with 18,500 candidates for 500 seats and 63,000 polling stations, you can write this all down or we can talk later, but the math makes it tricky. Those are, those are some rooms that would have an awful lot of people in them. Um, having said that, not every political party is able to recruit and deploy one observer for, one witness for every polling station, say 63,000. Um, that's very daunting. But in some, there were, in every polling station we visited as international observers, and I don't know what the report was specifically from the domestic observers, but party witnesses were present just about everywhere um, and from more than one party. Uh, and you know, the theory is then they can keep an eye on each other. Um, but as international observers, we have to be invited. Now, the problem with Zimbabwe is that President Mugabe doesn't want to invite the Carter Center to come observe <laughs> elections there. Uh, we Especially would very much me, like to. Um, we were invited to the Congo, and we, we respect that invitation and try to treat it um, you know, as seriously as possible in terms of being forthright in our assessment, in sharing our assessment privately and publicly, um, and on multiple occasions. It's not just election day. We were there more than three months before election day and remain, and we tried to do the same with the domestic observers on a, a more limited scale, but also to help to have long-term domestic observers. So you're observing the campaign, you're observing um, you know, the activities of political, not only political parties, but also of the election preparations, uh, and so the whole host of what goes into making an election. And, and I think there's another element to your question which was, so, so what, maybe, you, you know, you say the truth, you say what happened, but then you leave it, then, then sort of everybody walks away and says, well, then it's up for you to solve, solve the crisis that remains. So I heard that in your question, was I wrong? Yes. I, yes. I was wrong, or did I hear it in your no, question? You heard it. You heard it. I heard it, so let me, can I just say this, and then see if you have a comeback. I mean, I, I, believe that it, the international community does have a responsibility. I do. Um, I would prefer if the UN, the UN presence there were, mo were more robust in this circumstance. In 2006, there are a couple of things. Number one, what David was just talking about, in the private communications with the Elections Commission. There were many occasions where the Carter Center went and said, okay, listen, here's a problem that's gonna come. You, this is how we, we recommend you solve it this way. You're gonna build confidence. Put the, uh, the, the, the tally sheet on the door of the polling station so that people can come and check it 
against what their witness said was the count, then they can check that against the central results that are released from Kinshasa, and that will build confidence. That was just one example of something that the, the Carter Center was able to say to the commission. So these were advice that were given, that were helpful. Now, this time, there were not those kind, the same amount of occasions to, to provide that kind of very helpful technical advice because the, the time frame was very, very short. The funding for the election came in very late. The SANI, the Elections Commission, the SANI, was very late in, in each step. So this kind of helpful step that you can take to build confidence in the election wasn't able to happen. Okay, so those are those kinds of things. Now, if the UN could have been more robust and taken more responsibility for what we now have, which is a crisis, then, the, then this, we wouldn't be here, I think, in my opinion, because the UN would have been pushing, 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 pushing harder at each step, at each step. Where's the date? Okay, we don't have this met. This hasn't been done. We're going to postpone. Forget it. We're not going to have a crisis. We're going to postpone until everyone trusts the process. In my opinion, that's what the UN should have done, what the international community should have done. So now what do we have? We have a crisis. And I, I, I believe that that is a moral failing of the international community now, which is why I think that the only, in my opinion, now I could be alone, but you could spend a billion dollars on way less important things. We do it all the time. If a billion dollars could buy a real election, you know, and then you'll have people say, well, you know, elections, schmections, you know, however that works. Um, you know, better to build hospitals, better to help people directly. I'm sympathetic with that argument because it's money, and money can actually do things. But what about the problem of legitimacy of the government? We need to have a legitimate government that the people will trust. So I, I, this is what I'm, this is my own uh, personal well, response. It's, it's not just a failing of the international community. It's been, a, you can very, um, I think, authoritatively say it's been a failing of the government of Congo. Of course. It was the responsibility yeah. of the government to well in advance establish a new election commission. It was the responsibility, and indeed it was the demand of the government of Congo yeah. against the United Nations that we want to drive this election process. We want to contribute the majority share of the budget. Um, and that, you know, in the name of sovereignty, well, that's, you know, which is to be respected, but then it can also, the exercise of that sovereignty, the exercise of that responsibility to deliver a credible election can be challenged, can be interrogated, and, um, and, and that's where I would agree with you. There, the, whether it was designed to fail uh, is maybe up for debate. Uh, maybe it was designed to try to be just good enough you know, let's just make this just good enough and we can finesse the margins and we establish the election commission late, we reform the election law late, we do the voter registration late, then we don't really post the voters list so that people can't really check if they're on the voters list and then they can't really find their polling station. And in these other places, we run a perfect election <coughs> with a perfect result for the perfect president. Yeah, I think I think your question your question still remains a bit open about you know what's next, um, and and I think I, I may want to complete a bit with what Sophie said, 
um, we're, we're not gone. Um, I think, uh, as, as she already said in, in an early intervention, um, we, we have a permanent presence. I think it's, it's a bit exceptional, actually, for, for the Carter Center. But the ERC is one of, one of the countries where we, where we want to engage long-term with, with so, civil society actors in the field that are, that are living there and that will stay there. As one, as one activist wrote me in an email, you know, this is my country and I'm, I'm, my, kid, my, my children are here and I'll stay here. Um, and I think, you know, as soon as Sophie will go back to what we call the Human Rights House, which is a place for, for civil society organizations in Kinshasa to, to meet, if you go back, please come and visit us, um, yeah. is to actually have a meeting with civil society organizations who are all asking, not just the ones that we've, that we've been working with very closely, the Catholic Church um, um, throughout these elections, but more, more NGOs, all those involved in political rights, are asking for a debrief with the Carter Center to see what's, what's next. And I think that's a bit the complementarity that, that, that David has also been talking about between our international observation mission and, and the domestic observation mission, but more broadly, our human rights program that is, that is you know, trying to, to, to give a continued support uh, to, to the Congolese. Yes, I don't know if I'm allowed to say a word. Yes, come back. Yes. Uh, uh, in Africa, we do believe, we, we like outside observer. Why? Because we expect them to have a voice at the end of something that was going on. But somehow, there's no voice from the observer. And we question ourselves, what was the purpose of their presence in this event? Uh, what is going in Congo? I, I don't predict it, I don't wish it, but I'm telling you that uh, it, it, it will not go further. You will hear that people will die, will fight, will fight, and then later on, the, the human right will come, arrest that, arrest. Why can't we uh, prevent a lot of things yeah. not to happen than wait when it's happened so that we yeah. may look for uh, the, 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 the people who have to be yes. arrested or what? Yes. What I wish you people as the observer, I think in the future if you could f have a committee that at the end you make your voice heard, even those presidents with their power, they will pay attention. But if the voice of all the observers are separated, are not coming as one, they take the advantage and do what they want. I think uh, I, don't, I, I don't want to take a lot, but just as what Thank you. Thank uh, you. Um, can you just talk about the observers, what they said, sure, yeah, and then well, answer that question? Yeah, I think, well, very briefly, in terms of, you know, there, there were certainly efforts to get um, all, it's not mandatory, but to get uh, all of those observer organizations that uh, were present to meet. And um, the European Union mission, in fact, uh, convened several of those meetings uh, of both domestic and international observers. Part of the problem is, as in contrast to what uh, I described as our methodology of getting there well in advance, many organizations, unfortunately, show up two or three days before the election. Um, very difficult then to really consult with them uh, if they haven't been there. And if there is a chance for a last minute consultation, um, they quite normally are scrambling. We need maps, we need cars, how do we deploy, can we fly, uh, what's the election law, what are the procedures? Uh, and, and so you know, all those questions um, make it very difficult then just logistically. Secondly, we're all different types of political animals. 
The European Union, the African Union are intergovernmental organizations that represent member states. They can't, they, they have a degree of autonomy as a mission, but ultimately they need to consult with their foreign ministers and respective presidents. The Carter Center is a non-governmental organization, yes, founded by a former president, and yes, we consult with him, but we don't have a big red telephone that we pick up and say, President Carter, is it okay if, uh, you know, we deploy six people to this province, or is it okay if we say the results lack credibility? So we do try to coordinate, but you're right, a unified voice is a nice ideal, and we try to work towards that. Very quickly, there is a question from Twitter, and tweet, if you will. <laughs> Why do you say the 2011 elections lack credibility if Kabila got similar score in 2006 election? Um, you know, reasonable uh, question, I think. Uh, part of the difference is, he got a similar score in the runoff, which was you know, one against one, and so it was a two-person race. So 100% of the votes had to get split between two people, and so there's a mathematical natural outcome, if you will, uh, to the runoff. Uh, the, um, in this case, there were 11 presidential candidates. Where we say that the results lack credibility are precisely in um, the kinds of results that show 100% voter turnout with 100% of those votes going to a single candidate. Um, there were also, quite separately from that, um, some 4,500 polling stations that were never counted um, out of 63,000. 2,000 of those missing polling stations were in the capital, which is a very important uh, support base for Etienne Chitsaketi, the dominant opposition figure who came second in the results as announced. And, and so that's a disenfranchisement on a very large scale. Um, at least 1.6 million, the, the missing polling stations represent at least 1.6 million people, um, which is no small amount. And so you can get into kind of a numbers game of, well, how many votes either corrupted, manipulated, or lost are enough for you to start to scratch your head and say, hmm, Maybe there's a problem here. For Americans in 2000, it came down to a few hundred votes in some counties in Florida, which evoked an awful lot of scratching of heads and an awful lot more lawsuits than has been the case in the Congo. Um, ultimately, maybe this is where this ephemeral confidence factor comes into play. People didn't like, not Democrats, did not like the decision of the Supreme Court of the United States uh, that found in favor of, of George W. Bush, but they accepted it, and then they went home. Now, maybe the country should have burned. Uh, maybe we <laughs> should have killed a few more people. Maybe we should have dragged people around, their dead bodies in the streets, waited for the riot police to come out, and you know, taken a stand. I'm a Canadian, so I couldn't have done that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so I'm speaking in a fictional universe and being dramatic, but. You know, um, this becomes the, this is the discussion in Congo. Will Chitsukedi call the people out onto the streets? People power, a color revolution. Are people ready to go in the streets and die at the hands of the security forces? Um, that's an awfully hard question to ask of people. But I prefer your, your idea that let's prevent that. There's no reason. <laughs> How about if before we get the ICC involved, let's go ahead and, and uh, try to do the right thing, you know. Sir. Thanks, Ma. my name is Rogers Tishiba. Uh, I come from Zambia, but I've lived most of my part in the Katanga province. 
Lumumba was there and was killed. Mobutu was supported until 1990 where he gave a speech on democracy with tears. Kabila, the father, came and after some time he was taken off. A child, a son of him, was put into power. After the first election that he got, and now they are all what we are seeing there. Don't you think the situation in the Congo is a dispute of the cake which is on the table that Congolese are suffering from? Because the situation is the mining in the Katanga province, whereby some of the ends are not getting the part or the share that they need to get from that cake. And then Congolese people are suffering from a dispute of people who are outside and want the resources of that country. Thank you. Before I turn it over to Lise, you know, I was just looking back over the, um, over the list of, of natural resources in, in the Congo. Um, of course, we know about copper and cobalt and cassiterite and uh, uh, coal tan and gold and diamonds. And isn't it interesting that Antwerp is the, Antwerp, Belgium, you know, the, the, the principal trading center for diamonds. Well, there's no diamonds in the soil of Belgium. You know, the rubber industry built the automobiles of the early, early 20th century. Uh, rubber, the rubber that came from the Congo. You know, this is with us still. Um, and the only thing that is going to change this dynamic that you're talking about is a proper regulatory framework, a legal framework um, that is implemented by the government, that is monitored and observed and, and overseen by the parliament, and that Congolese civil society will be able to watch and keep in check those are the only answers to it. The international community, we should be limiting ourselves to that objective. To say, we must have full transparency, under a good, a good mining code, and the law is, is uh, Lise can talk about it. All of the tools are there. But what we need is for the government to be responsible the parliament to do its job of oversight, the civil society to be free to mobilize and watch, and all of those things for the international community to support. But, you're, but, but we still have all of these interests coming from the outside saying, well, we want our piece of the cake, we want our piece of the cake. There, and companies from all over the world. So this is just should be our objective together is, to, is those three things, a strong regulatory framework, a strong parliament oversight, and strong civil society. Lise, do you want to address that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's, a, it's a tough question that, that doesn't um, get a single answer um, where I could say, you know, for, for my program, it would be really good to say, you know, it's all about the national resources, you know, please uh, support our, our work. <laughs> you know, that would be too easy. I think there's a lot of cases um, um, that have been highlighted in, in the past and actually over the, over the years, over the century, um, where, where natural resources have, have played a, a detrimental role, not just, not just in the East, but also in terms of um, big money, I would say. I mean, the East 
there's money going around and, and, and it's, it's doing very bad things. But I think the proportions um, in the industrial sector are, are just, um, just not, not comparable. Um, but, but I don't think it's, it's all, about, all about natural resources. I think, um, you know, some, some people say, you know, um, the, the current, the current um, uh, lack of activism of the international community is mainly to protect international interests, business interests. Um, well, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I don't know if the current government or like the, the outgoing government has, has done a tremendous job to reassure uh, the international community, the business community, to come in and, um, and, and invest. Um, I mean, I think last year, I think they've, you know, they've made now a point of, of increasing that ranking, but they, they figured at a very, 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 very bottom of, of the doing business ranking. Um, and I, I mentioned the case of, of, of a company losing, losing its assets. It's, it's not a unique case. So, so um, just to, to bring it down to, you know, the support is there for the current um, or the outgoing, the outgoing present because of business interest, I think is a bit, um, is a bit too, too direct. Um, that said, as, as Karen said, I think our, our role is to, to make sure that more people are looking um, and more people are paying attention to issues that are, that are actually 100 years old. If, if you read uh, you know, Leopold's Ghost and you, you go through the economic chapters uh, about how he did that, um, there's a lot of you know, shares and companies that change names and, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's very sophisticated. And what I'm, I think is really surprising for the specific field I'm working on is that 100 years later, it's still, it's still that kind of you know, shares and, and, and changing names and, and, and companies, and I mean in Katanga there's, for a civil society organization, there's 35 of them to track and, and see who's a subsidiary of who and who bought what from who and what stock exchange. And so what I think is surprising is that actually it is a field that is, that is not so explored because of the, the long history that yes, these natural resources have played a role, not the only role. I think it's, it's too simplistic to boil it down to that. But yes, I think it's surprising that it has had so little attention to go into that detail and really try and analyze what's what's going on. Can I add one? Yeah. Just, uh, yeah. just you know, one other um, fire in the iron in the fire. You know, when we say international community, it's important. You know, it sounds like oh, it's lovey-dovey. It's you know, they're really great friends. Maybe so, but you know, community. Maybe we'll just say you know, let's call it something else. Um, they have competing interests, and and it isn't only you know, evil colonial Belgium or evil imperial America or great benevolent America, depending on where you. <laughs> Sit. It is also Congo neighbors on nine African countries. Um, these countries have direct interests in what goes on in Congo. Mm -hmm. um, they are important major players in Congolese everyday life, economy, and politics. And there are some who are more important than others. Angola, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Rwanda, Uganda, it's actually a pretty big number of the nine. Um, play extremely important roles in terms of you know, lack of border security, smuggling, uh, investment, it, possibilities for infrastructure development, population movement, refugee movement, cross-border conflicts, and not least of which the, the cross-border flow of arms uh, that, that fuel uh, and, uh, the conflict and enable it to reproduce itself. And, and so you know, it's, it's not just um, sort of what I think often gets evoked when we think international community is somehow it's, you know, this remote, aloof United Nations, which can only be there if it's invited by the Congolese government. You know, it's a little, at one level, it's also like being an NGO. The UN 
mandate is influenced and defined mm -hmm. by the Security Council, but that's 15 countries there as well. Right. And so, you know, in those 15 countries, aren't necessarily the nine, you know, far from it, are not necessarily the nine neighboring countries. Um, right. And so there's, you know, there are these layers and ramifications which only add to the challenge then of if you're a Congolese civil society organization trying to figure out where do the diamonds go or where does the coltan go and how does it happen and where does the money go. Right. We're about to, to wrap up. Did you want Sophie to give no, us? I, I just wanted to add just uh, that it, there aren't, again, any easy solutions. And, and, and for example, the UN has been criticized a lot uh, for, for its role, whether it's in peacekeeping, whether it's in the conflict areas, protecting civilians, et cetera. And certainly, there's a lot of things that it could improve. And we've seen it with the elections. You've spoken about it, Karen. But uh, you know, if the UN presence wasn't there, um, it would be much worse. I think they, they, there is, they are to an extent protecting civilians in some of these zones. They could do a much better job and I think we can you know, uh, advise the UN on, on how and, and, and uh, how to improve that. But again, it's not, it's not uh, as clear cut. Uh, you know, there's not no bad and, and good. Uh, and I think that's important to keep in mind. It's a very complex situation. Um, and I see there's a question, but we have to end because the webcast is going to end. And we can just stay up here. We'll, we'll come and talk to you and answer your question. Um, but um, just to end, I'd, you know, on a hopeful note, I mean, uh, what you should know is that uh, the Carter Center staff, Sophie at the helm there in Kinshasa at the Human Rights House, we have, we've developed some really very rewarding and wonderful partnerships with the, with the people of the Congo. And, we're very determined to be there and to, to do all we can. There's only so much an international group can do, but uh, it's been very rewarding. And, um, and, and despite the crisis, we remain hopeful because I think the people of the Congo are determined to, to build their future. And uh, thank you very much for coming on this rainy night. I've said that twice, but it's really special to, to make the effort. Um, and we hope you do uh, come back. I want to not let you get away without um, knowing about our next um, event. Um, we have this event will be archived at the Carter Center and the next program in our conversations at the Carter Center series is Dark Forest Black Fly which will take place on Tuesday, February 7th 7 to 8.30 um, and you can watch exclusive video footage from Dark Forest Black Fly which documents the elimination of river blindness from Uganda. The Carter Center is a, lead, is a leader in the fight against this debilitating parasitic infection, one of the major causes of preventable blindness in the world. Following the brief video, a panel will discuss the challenges of eliminating the disease worldwide and their experiences making the film. These, this event is free, and you can read more about it and other Carter Center events at cartercenter.org conversations. Thank you very much, and good night. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.